Hello and welcome to Learning from Legends with me, Peter Switzer. And this week we have an interesting and unusual guest. Uh, his name is Nicholas Whitlam. Yes, he's the son of the great Gough Whitlam. He was one of Australia's leading corporate high flyers, turning NRMA into a big and very successful financial insurance uh, institution. And uh, in retirement, he's started writing books. And one book he's written recently is Paris 1924, which were, in fact was an Olympic year like it was this year. Though it was an unusual Olympic year. In, in fact, there was in the wrong year. But that's another point again. The interesting thing is that I got a chance to catch up with Nick Whitlam to see what was so interesting about Paris in 1924. He thinks travellers who love Paris today will be intrigued by the similarities between Paris of 1924 and Paris of today. But I also talked to him about so many of the high-flying uh, things he got into as a corporate leader in Australia as well. And his observations on Malcolm Turnbull were also worthy of, uh, of note as well. So without any further ado, let's catch up with Nicholas Whitlam as he talks about Paris 1924, a guide. Nick Whitlam, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you, Peter. So Nick, this is positioning you. you know, I got to know you during the, the deregulation period of Australia of the 1980s, where your beloved Labor Party, given your father's traditions with that party, I, I use the word beloved, though I'm sure you had some battles with the, the beloved Labor Party in your corporate days, um, introduced deregulation. And now although they, although I, 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 I still think it's the best of the lot. <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't, I'm not surprised that you would say that. Um, but the, the, this was a period of deregulation. And, and is it fair to say that deregulation helped create uh, a corporate career that you did really benefit from? I'm not sure about that. I mean, I, I, I certainly um, prospered during that deregulation period in that I ran the State Bank of New South Wales. Mm -hmm. And it became a factor in the um, uh, domestic uh, banking system, uh, or more a factor uh, during my time than it had been previously. Um, look, at exciting times, uh, and uh, but I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I particularly prospered uh, in that time. Well, I, I mean, I. You know, I'd be, I thought the NRMA experience, Nick, like you really became a, a, a public figure with an organisation that lots of people in New South Wales in particular had a close affinity with. And you took this sort of sleepy little organisation and grew it into a, a pretty substantial insurer. And it now exists primarily as IAG. Yeah. I would have thought your role in the growth of IAG uh, was really important, but deregulation also helped as well. Is that, yeah. is that a fair argument? Yeah, look, the, um, the NRMA saga, which was not a particularly pleasant one, but it was important, um, was we had this um, um, organisation which was actually a dual mutual. It was a mutual that had a, a, a motoring organisation, the road service and the like, and, a, and, a, and a, a separate but linked mutual, which was NRMA Insurance. Yeah. 
And because it was a mutual, it was very, very easy to get rat bags on the board. Yeah. You know, there are, I think, 11 people on the board, so you only have to be the 11th most popular candidate uh, in those days. We, 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 we amended the um, uh, constitution so that that was much more difficult uh, and you really had to have some support. But um, it, the motoring mutual, controlled the board of the insurance company, which was the biggest and is still is the biggest general insurance company in Australia. And so you had the potential of having rat bags on the board. And, um, and there were, before my time, there were a couple of rat bags put on by previous administrations on, that is to say, on the insurance board. And uh, so what, what we did ultimately was demutualise the insurance company. The Motoring Association stated as a, as a motoring association. It was recapitalised, got some of the value of the um, insurance company for giving up its influence in the insurance company. And um, it became the basis for what is now IAG, which is a very important part of the financial system and uh, the most important general insurance group. Yeah, and I would have thought that you were the prime mover behind that. I, I don't expect you to, to admit to that, but I think history would record that you were the main... The main yeah, I think that's fair. <laughs> I think yeah. that's fair, and I'm very proud of that. Yeah, I, and I always remember once we, we had a lunch, I think it was at City Towns or someplace like that, and you, you quite shocked me. I, I actually asked why NRMA, as it was then, the insurance, the insurance had done so well. And you, you came up with a surprising answer, which has always taught me a lot about, you know, giving consumers what they want. You said, we don't say no to claims, which, which seemed like an extraordinary thing to say, but I think you made the point that when you fight claims, it often costs you more than what you just pay out. And the benefit of everyone saying, oh, they're really good with claims was a fantastic thing for the insurance reputation. Well, it's true. I mean, the um, some some of those uh, insurance companies, well known ones, effectively the claims department was the legal department. You know, they'll challenge you. They've got your money, and uh, they don't want to want to pay out. And the, and the important thing it seemed to me was to establish that uh, rapport, so that you did have a uh, relatively easy way of um, making a claim, and. Uh, and thereby establishing a, a, an ongoing um, fruitful relationship with the policyholder so they'd come back. Mm. And I think that's, uh, that's continued pretty satisfactorily with uh, uh, NRMA insurance within IAG. And before all that, you, you, you were associated with the Whitlam Turnbull Bank, which yeah. a lot of people would be really surprised to know that such a thing existed. So let's just give us a bit of, bit of a history of that. The, um, well, I was running the State Bank of New South Wales and uh, I thought I had the um, likelihood of becoming the Chief Executive of the Commonwealth Bank, but I didn't get it. Um, and I was sort of caught on the rebound from that and Malcolm Turnbull approached me and said, do you want to um, do you want to start an investment? You, you know, what are you doing? Do you want to start an investment bank? And uh, 
I said, well, there are certain things that need to be. So anyhow, I wrote the script for an investment investment bank. He, he Turnbull, had um, uh, Kerry Packer's uh, ear and um, access to Packer's money because Packer had just sold out of Channel 9. And um, we needed to, uh, you know, I said we needed $100 million. We want to be able to invest. Uh, the, two, the two lines of business would be to uh, provide financial advice and to invest as a principal from time to time, get in and out like the great investment banks in New York City. And um, so I wrote that script. Packer came in. Larry Adler came in. Uh, there was another very important investor who uh, I wanted to put in who would have, in a, in a sense, uh, uh, diminished the influence of those two. Um, but, they they want, were. <laughs> but they didn't want that, so that didn't happen. And so we started off with those two as the major, as the major backers. And um, within months, uh, you had the uh, crash of October uh, 1987. Mm. Uh, Larry wanted his money out, <laughs> uh, uh, so we arranged that. But anyhow, it was it was a uh, extremely successful outfit. I mean, it was a it was a combination of we did all the big deals, mm. you know, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and and then uh, Wasserstein Perella. You know, we, any big deal in Australia, we did, and that lasted for about three years until. It became intolerable for me to work with Malcolm. He's a very difficult person, <laughs> as a lot of people have found. Um, and so uh, he brought me up. Yeah. I'm knowing Malcolm, he would probably say that you were a difficult person as well. But we know that he probably is exaggerating, Nick, because you're a very uh, easy guy to get along. Affable, affable, yeah. No, I don't think I'm a very difficult person at all. I'm certainly not as difficult as Malcolm. <laughs> <laughs> there we are. Malcolm, I've known Malcolm since I was 21. I was his patrol captain at North Bondi Surf Club. So, but he was actually more tractable in those days. Maybe the, the surf club mentality. Yeah, well, his father was in that surf club too. His father was a uh, sort of knockabout eastern suburbs. More, he was more Marubra than, than Bondi, I'd say, his father. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah. Okay, that, so it's, a, it's an interesting interesting. Uh, a part of history of, of Nicholas Whitlam. But Nick, did, did you get out of corporate life after the NRMA IAG experience or was there something else I've, I've forgotten? Well, I wasn't so busy in, um, uh, in financial uh, matters, but I became very much a company director. I, I mean, I was on, I, I chaired until a couple of years ago, uh, each of the port authorities in New South Wales, mm -hmm. uh, Wollong, you know, Port Kembla, Sydney and Newcastle, we combined them into what is called the Port Authority of New South Wales. I chaired, I chaired that. I was the inaugural chairman of that. I was on a lot of the um, uh, disability uh, entities, what, what now forms eye care in New South Wales. But you know, I mean, I was the chairman of the Lifetime Care and Support Authority. I was the deputy chairman of uh, uh, work cover so forth. I mean the, the Lifetime Care and Support Authority is basically the model for the NDIS uh, so and I, so I spent about 10 years in all those those sorts of things. I'm, uh, I'm involved in, um, in a number of financial things right now um, 
the uh, I'm on the board of a Sharia compliant superannuation fund, present mm-hmm. world, uh, which is interesting. Um, you, and, history in the Middle East is extraordinary, isn't it? <laughs> indeed, <laughs> indeed. And I'm in, I'm in a very large um, China-related uh, hedge fund, Cayman and Hong Kong, called Generations Fund. I'm working with uh, a number of people on a, an infrastructure, I suppose you'd call it an incubator fund, try putting together a fund that will um, develop projects, infrastructure projects, usually in Southeast Asia, um, to, the, to become shovel-ready. And so you've got the money, because the, the, the problem is that there are governments and PPP uh, participants uh, who've got infrastructure in an outline form, but not in a, in a proper, well-developed project, mm. as I say, shovel-ready form. And uh, so this fund will actually develop those projects to that point and then flog them or take a participation going forward. Watch this space. Yeah, I will. I will watch this space. You always contact me when you want to talk about it as well. Now, I want want to create a bridge to this book on Paris. So everything (laughs) you've just said so far, anyone listening said, well, what's this guy got to do with Paris? Now, I'm going to walk across this bridge by asking you the question, you know, what's it like now living without your dad? He's such an enormous shadow a character in Australian history. He was your father. Um, yeah, he, he must have at times been willing to give you his view on what you're up to and all that sort of stuff. Or, or, or am I wrong? Did he basically keep his own counsel when it came to the life of his son, Nick Whitman? Uh, he, I mean, he was a very supportive father. He never, uh, he never said, you must do this, you must not do that. Um, he was not a person who was heavily involved in business. He didn't know much about uh, business. He he knew a lot about a lot of things, but that um, uh, so he so he didn't have a an entry into my world in in that way, what became my world. Um, but since we're trying to find a bridge to my excellent new book, okay. Paris, nineteen twenty four. Uh, he was, of course, the um, ambassador to UNESCO in the 80s, yeah. uh, which is based in Paris. And um, uh, so that's, that's one link. But my real links are these. I, um, I worked uh, for JP Morgan. I was, in fact, the, it was my first proper job in... Uh, New York and then London, but my boss in London was based in Paris. And I was in London for six years uh, working for JP Morgan, became a vice president when a vice president meant something in those organizations. Mm. I was the youngest vice president ever, I think, in JP Morgan. And, um, but my boss was in Paris. So I used to have, you know, suffer the burden of having to go over to <laughs> Paris, you know, regularly. Well, I think. Um, you know, and then I, uh, I subsequently uh, worked in Hong Kong for Paribas, Banque de Paris et de Paribas, which is, you know, the great French uh, Banque d'Affaires. And well, of course, Australians might know it more as Paribas, but yeah. you pronounced it properly. Thanks very much. Yeah, correct pronunciation, Paribas. You see, I mean, it's BNP Paribas, as it now is uh, 
uh, sponsors the French Open, so you always see it with that green um, background in, in uh, Roland Garros. But the um, so again, I worked in Paris, and I, you know, I've been to Paris umpteen times, and so the genesis of this book was when uh, Paris got the Guernsey to um, uh, host yet again for the third time um, the Olympics in 2024. And, you know, my own interest in the Olympics was peaked by the first peaked by the 56 Olympics in Melbourne, where I I went, I turned 11 on poolside while the 200 metres press track was... uh, taking place but well that was the big event for me mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I suppose about 11 I'm not sure what time of the day I turned 11 but anyhow the um and it, it sort of got me thinking as to what would Paris have been like in 1924 not just at the Olympics it happens to be the Olympics um uh, that they hosted um and only two of the 13 chapters cover the Olympics I mean they cover everything from politics, to culture, to nightlife, to food and uh, booze. Um, It's quite quirky. And it's really a guide to Paris in 1924. That is to say, if you were a um, middle-class, middle-aged tourist, we might be a bit older than middle-aged, Peter, you and me, but anyhow. Yeah, we're definitely middle-aged. That, we're redefined <laughs> middle-aged, you know. Mature, mature tourist. <laughs> what would you be interested in? Yeah. And what was taking place at the time? And what's what of that is uh, is still there? Yeah. It really, it's really was such a fun exercise to put it together. Look, and I was going to ask you that question, that, you know, when you go to Paris, that the tradition is still the things you go to. Like... As a person who, believe it or not, did first level art in the HSC, primarily because I hated the physics teacher, he <laughs> uh, always wanted always me a to, good motivation. He <laughs> yeah, always wanted me to cut my hair. And there's the age where I actually had hair and I had long. I remember too, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, but and, and so I suffered the George Pompidou building with their, their silly pipes on the outside. But that's nothing I, I really care about. Like Paris, I like the old world of Paris. Yeah. And in 1924, and compare it to today, are there great differences in that in that area no. around? Uh, my my pronunciations are terrible, so I won't even try say Saint Honoré or Rue de Rosalie or whatever this. I, I, my French is more like Ray Warren French. Practice makes perfect. The uh, <laughs> look, the physical layout of Paris is very much the same today as it was then. In fact, I opened the uh, uh, the book with a walk uh, that uh, a very famous uh, Black American poet um, took on in February mm. 1924. He got off the train of the Gare du Nord and started to walk. You know, got the bus and to the uh, Opera and started to walk and. And all, and I, you know, I identify, I mean, none of that's changed. I mean, what's behind the, the Hausmann, you know, uh, Hausmann was the great architect. The, uh, what's behind those facades has, of course, changed, been modernised. I mean, I, when I worked for Paribas, I worked in what is the Marie, the mayor's, what had originally been the Marie of the first arrondissement, mm. uh, which is where, and in, his, in that office, that famous office, uh, 
of the Marie, Napoleon, mm. married Josephine in the civil ceremony, because you have to have a civil ceremony and, uh, and marriages are not legal in the eyes of the state unless they're civil ceremonies in France, very civilised. Mm. Um, uh, that office of the mayor is effectively intact from uh, Napoleon's day. But then you go outside, this is at Paris-Vaux, you go outside that, that office and it's all modern and glitzy and, you know, what you'd expect of a 21st century office. So, I mean, the, obviously the uh, Tour Eiffel was the most prominent building, same still still is, and you've got the... Uh, the Eiffel Tower for, for people... This is the Eiffel Tower, yeah. Immersion to Ray Warren <laughs> French, yes. <laughs> and the Tour Montparnasse, which is a huge and intrusive building on the Gare Montparnasse, um, that, you know, is a, um, uh, an intrusion since then. But, you know, you look up the uh, Champs-Élysées and, I mean, it's, uh, you've got the Arc de Triomphe at the end. Beyond that, you've got Lash, the, uh, the Arch. Mm. Um, uh, it's got to be a pretty clear day to see that. Um, and, and of course, in the uh, uh, the Louvre, you've got that wonderful uh, what do they call it? Uh, uh, pyramid, pyramid, I uh, Pay's pyramid. But of course, that's a, that's that's a that's a glass structure and doesn't intrude. You know, in the courtyard in front of the Louvre, it creates a new entrance. No, physically, it's pretty much the same as uh, as what it was in 1924. Now, Nick, I, I'm thinking um, because I don't know you wouldn't probably know this, but uh, over the, the the period of last year's lockdown, um, my wife Maureen was contacted by the Hearst organisation, and they asked our organisation to um, restart publishing uh, Harper's Bazaar in Australia, and our first issue comes out at the end of this month. And I'm thinking you do a feature on Paris 1924. I'm going to say that. I live with a, a, a Parisophile or a Francophile who just loves Paris and a lot of the readers of Harper's Bazaar, I'm sure, are as big a yuck as we are as well. Uh, they would be fascinated at, you know, what was Paris like in 1924 yeah. similarities. So I'm sure I'll, I'll let Maureen know and I'm sure Please. she'll contact you because it, it is, it is. I know we men like it too, but it seems to me that women have a, an unbelievable affinity with Paris. Yeah, my wife is my wife. You know, loves going to Paris and has, you know, particularly in the uh, uh, Saint Germain quarter that you know she she feels comfortable working out and shopping, shopping, shopping. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm more eating and drinking, I think. But uh, uh, you know, it's interesting. You know what what restaurants started in 1924. And have become famous and still, you know, still there. Um, What's the standout one that everyone would know? Do you think, uh, Nick? Well, one that uh, I, I'm very fond of is uh, because I think it's still um, pretty much what it was. Is Le Select, Le, the Select, Le Select. On the back of the book is La Rotonde, which is next to the Select, mm. uh, which is up in Montparnasse. I'm not as fond of that uh, as I am of the Select, only because it's been cannibalised a bit. There's a cinema in half of what used to be La Rotonde, and the, but the La Rotonde's pretty good. And Le Dome, which is opposite, 
these are these are the three great bistros in 1924 at uh, in Montparnasse. La Coupole, which people know about, which is you know, almost next door to all of those, wasn't there in 1924. It wasn't until 1927. So I'm a bit, I don't give it much of a Guernsey. But it, uh, you know, I mean, each of those, but Le Select, I think, is the most genuine. It's, it's, it's uh, green and white. Well, Nick, um, I'm sure a lot of people, it, it seems like a fantastic Christmas book to, for particularly um, a husband uh, wanting to show his, or, or a man who wants to show his partner that he really cares. It's the kind of uh, uh, romantic kind of book. Yeah, I think that, that it's, it's a guide, mm-hmm. but it's a guide to Paris in 1924, which can be served, used as a guide now. Yeah. You can only buy it right now on Amazon. That, that'll change in coming months, but it takes months to get stuff out in um, uh, Australia. The, uh, so you've got to go. You've got to go on Amazon Books. Nicholas Whitlam, Paris, nineteen twenty-four, a guide. It's number one seller right now. Good in the in the history of France um, category. I don't think there are a lot of competitors. <laughs> <laughs> well, who knows? Who knows? You don't need to say that, but so. I think it's the kind of uh, Christmas read I can see a lot of people putting in the stocking. Mate, thanks for joining us on the program. It's great to talk to you. And good to speak to you too. And that was Nick Whitlam talking about Paris 1924. Thanks for joining us. If you want to know more about Switzer, always go to switzer.com.au. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you next week. Quentin time! Quentin time!